wish I could remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> Somebody's got a case of the Mundus. <laughs> Welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, The Voice of Young and Old Cancer. I'm your co-host, Matthew Zachary, and I am a proud 17-year, soon-to-be 18-year young adult survivor of pediatric brain cancer. My co-host, Annie Goodman, is off for the evening. She'll be joining us again next season. Uh, she is a young adult breast cancer survivor, and pretty awesome. We wish her well. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year, so, got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks. Thus, the stupid cancer show is changing the world, one team on fusion at a time. I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio Talk, or listening to the archives on stupidcancershow.org. Tonight's show, our season 13, season 13 finale, with <laughs> the peanut gallery here, with uh, Congressman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Join us for an exclusive 30-minute interview with her. She is the U.S. Representative for Florida's 23rd Congressional District and Chair of the Democratic National Committee. Uh, she's a breast cancer survivor, activist, and she's got a new book out called For the Next Generation, A Wake-Up Call to Solving Our Nation's Problems. Now available on the bookshelves and in our Survivor Advocate Spotlight, the one and only David Dubin, colorectal cancer survivor advocate and founder of Alive and Kickin'. And I'm Maureen Sweet, Chief Everything Else Officer here at Stupid Cancer, and I will be live tweeting throughout the broadcast at Chemodex. So send me your questions and feedback at any time using the hashtag SVRadio. All right. Hello. Well, hello. Uh, can you believe it's season 13? Uh, I, I feel imagine. like it was just season one yesterday, even though I was not even around for season You were like one. nine years old during season one. I was. <laughs> May 28th, 2007. First right. show. The first show is a good one. Out of my bedroom, when practically. You're, when you're like, we are live. And is anyone listening? <laughs> Anybody there? Yeah. No one is there. Yeah. My USB microphone plugged in my old Mac. Remember that? Well... Look how far we've come. We've come that far. Mm-hmm. 290 shows today. This is 290. Amazing. This is 290, yes. Yeah. That's correct. Pretty incredible. 
So what do we know about Annie? I know she couldn't make it tonight because she was going through some... um, Well, she just had a pretty exhausting week. Yeah, yeah, as we spoke to her last week, Tuesday, she went and got some follow-up consultation at Sloan, and then the following day uh, flew to Houston to talk to somebody at MD Anderson. Apparently, that was a productive conversation, Um, but that's been a lot. I mean, she had a complete hysterectomy a few weeks ago, so she's, I think, just a little bit tired from all the traveling. Um, And so, yeah, we're just... We're, we're letting her take the night off. Yeah, wishing her well. Well-deserved. Yes, exactly. So there was a really scathing article that came out in U.S. News and World Report over the weekend. Yeah, I, felt, I felt like that the game for only posting it today because it, it. it was all over the web. Was it all over? It was all over the web. I don't think I even know what you guys were even talking about. Okay. We'll tell you. Let us tell you. <laughs> Let us tell you. Apparently, there's a brand-new study that came out of Northwestern that I apparently was somehow involved with. I think this went back to their fertility thing from last summer. Yeah, yeah. They've been doing some analysis of um, hospitals with fertility options and things, but please right. continue. Yeah, and like something like still like three quarters of all the major cancer centers in the country do not offer fertility options or even a conversation about fertility rights mm-hmm. to either young adult patients. Yeah, yeah. So that's only one in four that are doing it. Right. Um, and, you know, we, we talk here on the show and we have more survivor spotlights and we, like for us, it seems to be the experience that more and more people are hearing about it, but it seems that, you know, for 75%, right. either they're hearing about it from somewhere else and then actively asking for it, or they're just, you know, they've somehow been missed out on, which is... Or one might argue that perhaps five years ago, none of them did it. Yeah. And now Maybe it's one in four is a, too. Yeah, as opposed to one in a hundred. Yeah. You know. Progress, exactly. Yeah. But still very... A lot of progress to make. Yeah, that was our, our comment on our Facebook page, which was um, that uh, um, we've come so far, but yet we've got so much further to go. But definitely definitely progress in the best sense of the word. Did you steal that from somebody's uh, campaign trail? I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, but that did come out of Northwestern, and big shout-out to them because yeah. um, they have a really great oncofertility program going on them and a few other major hospitals in the country. So good job to Northwestern for looking into that for – you know, kind of showing some of the some of the progress that we need. But this really is a call to action. Absolutely. We, we we always ask our stakeholders and our listeners and our friends and followers to, upon your return to that cancer center, make them aware, mm-hmm. find out who the person is. It's not always easy to find out who the person is, but do your best to dig, do some R&D in Black Ops at your cancer center, and find out who would be in charge of letting patients know about their fertility rights mm-hmm. and point them to my uncle fertility. Dot org, which is the Northwestern University's comprehensive cancer uh, package deal of educational programs to train hospitals on how to have this conversation. And embed, there's a new term now, fertility navigators yes. at your cancer center. Yes. Really big deal. Very important. Yeah. Yep. So uh, what else is up? We won. Oh, Mallory Rivera. We hired human being number five, as Kenny put it, at the at here at Stupid Cancer. And she's here in studio waving on the radio. Yep. Um, she got a great face for reading. <laughs> that's horrible. She's beautiful. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, I realized it was an insult. You totally, be- you totally belong. You totally belong. <laughs> hazing. Yeah, we're hazing. hazing. Well, if you could, if you could apparently, turn the mic she, yeah, over. apparently she hasn't her, uh, earned her, her on mic. On mic privileges. Lean yeah. into it. I'm going to steal one, Ben. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Hello, Mallory. Hello. Welcome aboard the Stupid Cancer Train. Very exciting. And your very first Stupid Cancer show. Yes. So where do you come to us from? Besides Long Island? Uh, everywhere and everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, Long Island and actually music. I was a singer. Some stuff. Do you have perfect pitch? No. Okay. I was going to say no. sing a B flat. No. I have relative pitch. I, I, it's, 
if I think about it, I can hum a G. Okay. But, but no. you are a mezzo or you're an alto? I'm a mezzo. Okay. Yeah. What do you like to sing besides every musical theater? Everything. Well, what's your go-to for karaoke? Adele. Wow. Oh, wow. Similar to uh, my sister. We have to find a karaoke bar around here now. Yeah, and I have to brush up on my rap because that's the only karaoke <laughs> I do. Get well, out of singing as possible. Yeah. We're incredibly thrilled to have you on board. We're excited to join us tonight. Yes, I'm very excited to be part of the team, be, be human being six. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and we have to give a special shout out to Rebecca Nellis from Cancer and Careers for pointing you in our direction. Thank you, Rebecca. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Rebecca. We give her no credit. She gets credit now. <laughs> so thank us. This will take care of the entire 2014 year. Great. For Rebecca. <laughs> there you go. Yes, exactly. Thank you, forward. Now we, now we can go uh, resume giving her shit. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. She gets a reprieve of one minute, and now it's back to business as usual. Yes. So I think uh, that's kind of it for our morning updates here. Yeah. Yeah. Good morning, everybody. I did, I did, I did have... Coming at you from Australia. I yeah. did have a birthday. Oh, my yeah, goodness. KK. That's right. Oh, no. Now we have to do the whole thing here. Well, you know, yeah, we'll have the uh, Metro thing. Happy we'll, birthday. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Can you do that Marilyn Monroe one? Just kidding. No, you don't, you don't have to play, you don't have to play any, any music. We'll just acknowledge that I am now 27 and move on with our lives. No, I really right. want to play the happy birthday song. Yeah, you want well, to play happy birthday, Lisa? Like, no, I'm going to play the I'm having some soundboard difficulties. Happy birthday to you. Happy Worst version ever. Now, this is the slowest version ever, too. Were you listening to the whole thing? Uh, I'm already over it. We really are. Wow. We just lost like 30 seconds of airtime on this. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Can I guess the standing out? For turning, in, turning to his late 20s for the first time. I've made it. We're happy to have you. With half a liver, that's very impressive. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's regenerating. <laughs> like a salamander? Yes. Wonderful. All right. Well, uh, let's get to our guest. Live in studio. We love when our guests are live in studio. Dave Dubin and his wife, Robin, are joining us tonight. Dave is a two-time young adult colon cancer survivor and a one-time kidney cancer survivor. He's a colorectal cancer, cancer celebrity in his own right. Uh, he's the founder and mascot and chief of Alive and Kick, and they'll be talking to us about what that is. And after half a dozen surgeries, chemotherapy, and more probing and prodding than he can to remember, he is again live here in studio tonight. Please join us in welcoming David and Robin Gibbon. Hello. Good to be here. It's always good to be somewhere. I agree. Beat the alternative. So the cancer is so nice. You had it thrice. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Mm-hmm. It's not a competition. Mm, some might argue in different disease markets, but I agree with you. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but I'm, again, we love live guests here in studio. It's always nice to see the faces and, and see the expressions and have that conversation. But let's just get it started. You're, you're kind of rocking the celeb tonight. You've got a lot of followers on, the, on Twitter and whatnot. And mm-hmm. he scoffed at me for not following her on Twitter. So I didn't scoff you. You did. Did not scoff. You certainly, it was a scoff. You're welcome to scoff. If yeah. I'm following you, I'm going to unfollow you. <laughs> <laughs> now I'll scoff. I may scowl. Yeah. <laughs> so, or forward brow. I like it, exactly. So you had colon cancer once at 30, colon cancer again at 40. Yep. So what were you doing at 29 years old? Um, having symptoms because I was misdiagnosed and it wasn't until I was close to my 30th that I was actually diagnosed the right way. So how long did you go? Because late detection is always an issue for young adults. Doctors don't take it seriously. We right. understand self-risk, whatever is going to be more invincible. Were you, I was that, were you that? I was that. Uh, you know, regardless of, of the fact that it said 
family history of colon cancer right there on the chart. There I was uh, having symptoms and the doctor saying, you know, the, the uh, unfortunate story of uh, it's stress. You know, we had just gotten married. We had a uh, first child came through, first house, you know, it's st- business just got sold. Just stress, the hemorrhoids, go, you know, try something over the counter. We'll see you in a few months. Right. Didn't go away. What was your job at the time? We owned a medical supply business, so uh, we had grown. We were growing significantly, and we had just been acquired by a, a larger publicly traded company. So we were going through the growing pains of, of you know, becoming acclimated to a, a, a different boss. I was used to being, you know, reporting only to my wife and my mother-in-law, and now I had to report to shareholders. So did they understand when you got sick? And yeah. How did you deal with that? No, they did. Uh, that really was not. That really wasn't the issue. But that's a good thing. Oh, I agree. Yeah. Uh, wholeheartedly, uh, there that was doesn't no, usually happen that way. Uh, we were very fortunate in that. Well, at the time, all that mattered were numbers. So as long as we were meeting our numbers, they didn't really care what symptoms we had, what diagnosis we had. You know, you know, you, you could be missing a limb; they wouldn't care uh, as long as you met your numbers. I guess that's fair. It, it is fair uh, in its own way. It's like the free market empathy. Right. Very nice. That's my new band name, by the way. Free Market Empathy? Yeah. I like it. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Good. All right, so talk us through then. You had a young child. Yep. How old? Uh, he was just under a year old, I would say, when I was first diagnosed. 15 months. I had muted your mic, Robin. Oh. Sorry. So, all right, so you didn't have to have a I, talk. I tried that before. <laughs> it doesn't work in my end. Well, there's that. What, remember Click, that bed movie with, uh, with um, mm-hmm. Adam Sandler where you could mute people? With right. Your, yeah. That doesn't really work either. No. So you didn't have to talk to your child about your disease because he was too young. Correct. Right. But eventually, they grew up and you had two more. Right. Well, I mean, if you think about it, our, our children haven't known me as essentially being cancer-free. I mean, you know, Zach was, was under a year old when I was first diagnosed. And then, like anything else, you know you're not – there really is no such thing as cancer-free once, you, once you've had it. And, you know, again, for me coming back again 10 years later and then the, then the third one. So the kids really have only known me as a cancer parent. Right. Yeah. And, they, and you know, they know of all the testing that we go through. And, and regardless of having no uh, obvious symptoms, uh, each time I go for a checkup or as I call them, my quarterly annuals, you never know what you're going to find. Do you find that to be like the new stigma where you don't look sick, but you are? Absolutely. Uh, you know, for, for someone in my mid-40s, I look okay. And for someone who's been through what I have, I look, you know, I, I, I look that much better. I mean, you, you would never be able to tell uh, without seeing the scars or hearing the history of, of what I've gone through. Well, my dad, I say this on pretty much every show, my dad has a saying, which is that the secret to life is to clean up nice, make it look good, and never look under the hood. It's a very good thing. Yes. I, I'm learning a lot from you tonight. Yes. I and you have some new material. Kenny grows up because of me. And I grow down because of Kenny. We, we, we meet in the middle. <laughs> we do meet in the middle. I like it. So, so, the, so talk us through the last decade. How many, what has been your regiment, your medical regiment, and your survivorship in that sense? Well, after tumor number two, uh, when the colon cancer came back from me, that's, you know, that's when we had the genetic testing done. Um, again, even regardless of the family history, we really, no one put two and three together and came up with seven and said, check genetically. So it wasn't until tumor number two that we had the genetic testing done. And when I was determined that I had the Lynch, the Lynch syndrome, 
Um, that's when I started seeing the genetic oncologist, and that's when she prescribed the regimen that, again, I call the quarterly annuals, which is, um, you know, the, the annual colonoscopy, endoscopy, uh, the uh, CTs of chest, abdomen, and pelvis, um, a cystoscopy, and a mammogram, because in, in Lynch syndrome can lead to breast cancer, not only in women, but obviously in men. And because of that, uh, I stumbled upon the kidney tumor. I would not have checked for it otherwise. Right. So do your doctors understand that you're not 80? ADD or 80? Both. <laughs> Perhaps both. Yeah, uh, sure. Have you found that it's been difficult to, I mean, you work in advocacy, so you talk to more than just your doctor. Have you found it to be um, more of a trend that doctors are now understanding? I mean, we can talk about the whole colon cancer under 50 movement which I think is like the coolest spin-off of the young adult cancer movement. And I like to use the term movement. It is a movement right. because it's the double entendre of the best possible kind. Yes. Yes, exactly. We all love our movement. Yes, we do love our movement. Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> the show is descending there's, into there's, chaos. There's a lot of, uh, <laughs> a love, lot of love in the air right now. Yep. Oh, yeah, plenty of it. Yes. We're in the bowels of conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could keep going all night. Yeah, he's got he, – try the veal. He's trying everything. He's not here until Thursday. Yes. Okay. Sorry. So, so what, is, what have you seen then in the past 10 years, having gone through this meeting, other young adults under 50 with colorectal cancer? Have you seen a change in attitude of doctors, or are people still getting like stage four diagnoses because no one's taking them seriously? I would say it's a yes and a yes. I've seen them both. Um, I, I do see more, and I think it has to do with more of the information that's being put out there by organizations like yours that people are more aware of their surroundings, more aware of their options if they are, in fact, diagnosed younger. So because of that, I think uh, people are being checked sooner, and I think they're, you know, being their own advocacy, you know, being their own advocates. However, we are also, I mean, and because I see all the young colon cancer survivors that come through, the same stories are still taking place. The, the, the kids, and I call them 20, kids because, sorry, Kane, but, you know, 20s and even 30s coming down with colon cancer and going through the same thing I did, which is the misdiagnosis initially, the waiting of anywhere from a couple of weeks to a couple of years before actually finally saying, I need a specialist. Um, and But then at the same time, I also see the opposite end, which is survivors of, let's say, Lynch syndrome who uh, don't get the same treatment that I do. They don't have the same... Uh, you know, the same type of genetic oncologist who's overseeing my care uh, and making sure that, you know, everything is looked at uh, regularly. Um, and there's, there's disparity nationally that way. And you see that online. So, yeah, you know, as much as we've come half circle, I would say, yeah, uh, definitely not full circle. So you mentioned you had a family history that you were unaware of, even that was right there in your chart. Who in your family had colorectal cancer? No, I was actually I was actually aware of the family history. Um, oh, you were. Okay. Yeah. Um, but again, so my grandfather had colon cancer in his 60s. He lived uh, well into his 80s. He ultimately had a, an ostomy. Uh, my father was in his 40s when he developed colon cancer. He, he's now 81. He actually, uh, when the day I got the award, it was actually his 81st birthday, which was very nice. Nice. Uh, and he was in Florida, so that worked out perfectly. Um, so it was there on the chart, the family history. 
But again, well, that's unique to have it in the, in the chart even 15 years ago. It wouldn't normally be there 15 years ago. Um, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. But it was there. And, and you know, so, so there you go. You see, um, you know, this is, this is back when HMOs first started. Right. So we're talking 1997. Yeah. Um, so the idea was the primary position being the gatekeeper. Remember that? Right. Um, so here, here I am walking in. I'm 29 years old. Six feet tall, 200 pounds. I'm still playing soccer. First kid, you know, business. I'm gonna have a full schedule, kind of like I do now. So, you know, the doctor shrugs it off and yeah. says, "Move on," mm-hmm. and and it's just staring right in the face. And 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 I'll be the first to say, "Stupid me, I didn't push it." Should have. So, but that opens up another conversation that we've done on on lots of other shows, which is, is it fair? to take someone with an invincibility complex by the sheer inherency of them being young and burden that with them being proactive or aware? Or is it a personality thing? Because you're clearly a proactive, precocious guy. It seemed like genetically from birth. I didn't want to talk to your parents about that. But, you know, I went through the exact same thing. I was shunned in, in for six, eight months. I had brain cancer. And like, oh, here's Robitussin. True story. Didn't work. I love Robitussin, yeah. by the way. It works now when I have a cold. It didn't work when I had uh, brain cancer. Sometimes I throw it at him. <laughs> it does. In the bottle? Yeah. Nice. It hurts. Frozen. Yeah. <laughs> Robitussin shots. Yes, exactly. Pun intended. Exactly. Nice. So, all right. So, I want to talk. Oh, so, let's talk about your, your charity work then, because you're you're here, you're alive, you've got three healthy kids, um, you're you're married, you're a beautiful wife. Uh, I'd love to ask Robin a quick question, then, if if you're okay with it. Sure. All right. Besides the tolerable tolerability factor of, of living with a man like this, how has being a caregiver to him affected your life? And um, it's. You know, it's something that I guess over the years just kind of grown with us. Uh, He's never one to want me to do a lot for him. And fortunately, we've gotten through all these episodes of cancer smoothly and successfully, and he moves on. And it's more about what we can do now to inform others with our foundation and and for our kids too because our kids have not yet been genetically tested and we have three boys uh, the oldest one just turned 18 so he's going to be tested very soon and they all have a 50-50 chance of being testing positive for Lynch syndrome as well. Um, So we kind of focus more on them at this point and the future and how we wrap the foundation into that and what we can do to inform others and talk to others as well about this. Well, kudos to you. Two-thirds of our, um, uh, actually one-third of our programming at the summit and on our show is all about caregiving. And it's an often unspoken art and and a love that that it's just under-discussed. So kudos to you for sticking with it and and, uh, being there for him. But you mentioned the foundation. Let's talk about Alive and kicking. What's that all about? Well, as I like to say, it's literally and figuratively me. Um, that's where the name came from. Uh, you know, besides surviving everything that I've been through, I'm still uh, a soccer junkie. I've I've been a soccer player since I was five, growing up in 
Massapequa. And uh, I still play today. Uh, I played yesterday. It was a beautiful day. I played two and a half hours of soccer. I'm paying for it today. But, you know, it's one of those things. Uh, I still have the love for the game, and, and I still get out there. And after I'm done, I hand people my uh, foundation business card, and it says right there, three-time survivor. And I'm keeping up with guys Kenny's age, and uh, they're very surprised. So, um, What's your mission? What do you accomplish? Well, we're trying to reach the audience that is not already consumed with colon cancer already. Uh, there are a lot of really good advocacy groups that are, that are already dealing with the survivorship, uh, the caregivers, as you alluded to. We're trying to reach those who don't think about it, uh, those who, who haven't thought about colon cancer before. And we're really trying to push the whole genetic component. Uh, genetics is, is obviously a, a huge factor in our history. Um, statistically, they're saying they. You know, st- the statistics say uh, about all uh, about seven percent of all colon cancers are genetic. I'm going to go out on a limb, you know, without any scientific backing whatsoever, and say those numbers are probably higher, especially when we start getting a lot more genetic testing done. So, you know, there's a there's a large I'll use the term movement once again uh-huh. uh, be, because we can, and there's a large movement in the colon cancer world to see anyone who is diagnosed with colon cancer under 50 to get genetic testing, uh, simply because we do think there is a significantly larger population that is affected genetically than just a random selection. So, in terms of you raising money, we are raising money, but we're also working with other foundations because. I have a certain set of traits that, you know, allow me to shout at the rain uh, as well, if not better than most of the others out there in the colon cancer world. So I, I, you're I'm like happy. The Liam, you're the Liam Neeson. You have a very, very particular set of skills. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, you, you lost me briefly. Yes. And then, and then you, you had he, me again. We, we were navigating the murky water. We were. Yeah, he does that. That was good, though. It was, yeah. it was a good segue. Uh, so, yeah. Um, so... I've been asked to speak at a number of different foundation events, uh, moderating. And you won an award recently for the Colon Cancer Alliance. What was that award? The award was uh, the Sapphire Visionary Award from the Colon Cancer Alliance. Um, you know, the email came out letting you know the the world know that the this award was coming up again, and that you should nominate someone you think is warranted for this. And I was. I'll be honest with you, I was very pleased to hear email or to see the emails coming through from various people that I know saying that I should be nominated and that they were going to. I really didn't think that much of it. But, um, you know, it, you know the, my speech was that uh, in the middle of the night I get the email saying that I won. And then I look back a little bit and I saw who had won this before me. And some of the names of the people who had won this, I mean, they've been doing this for years and years and years, just really great people like Nancy Roach and Andrew Spiegel. And, and, and for me to be in that realm, I thought was uh, pretty cool. And quite honestly, I, was, I had a hard time going back to sleep. I was just uh, kind of really honored to not only been nominated, but to actually win. Well, well, well deserved indeed. Thank you. And uh, I'm surprised we didn't connect earlier than we did uh, than this year. But uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of what you do, and I, I love when patients really take an active role in helping the next them. So we've got about a minute left. I just want to wrap by asking you one more question, which is now that you have this sort of Spider-Man kind of responsibility uh, to be there as a mentor for other young adults going through colorectal cancer, what is your primary advice to them uh, to navigate their survivorship and stay empowered? 
Well, I always tell people, first of all, I, I'm not big on giving advice. Uh, my, my comment is, is for you to be your own advocate, is, is to ask a ton of questions because there are no stupid ones. Um, you know, really, you know, make sure that whoever is taking care of you, whether it's, you know, whether it's a caregiver or a physician or, or whatever, that they know everything and that you're asking them your options. Because, again, online I see various versions of care uh, across the spectrum, and it's unfortunate. There really is no standard. Until there is a standard, you have to make your own luck, so to speak. So that's the way I position it with them. And I'm comfortable with people calling me and, and emailing me and texting me and you know, instant messaging me and asking me the questions because I've been there, and I don't mind sharing. And uh, what's the website for our listeners and your Twitter handle? We are uh, aliveandkicking.org. That's A-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-K-I-C-K-N.org. And Twitter is aliveandkicking.db. Fantastic. David Dubin, Robin Dubin, thank you so much for joining us here on the Stupid Cancer Show. You guys are awesome. Our pleasure. Thank you. All right, let's breeze to the news here. Kenny, for the last time this Hello, season. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. All right, Matt, head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. have three events on the map right now in uh, Egan, Minnesota, uh, Evanston, Wyoming, and Northbrook, Illinois. Okay, Vegas time. Registration for the 7th Annual OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults is open for business. Come to the largest young adult cancer conference in the world and join 500 of your fellow young adult patients, survivors, and caregivers for an epic three-and-a-half-day event that will change your life. Visit omg2014.org to learn more. And don't forget about the OMG Players Club, which is your path to a $600 travel scholarship just by fundraising for stupid cancer. Didn't get what you want this holiday season? Return those uh, bad gifts and head on over to the Stupid Cancer Store at stupidcancerstore.org. We have a holiday sale right now and a year-end sale coming up. Check it out, stupidcancerstore.org. And finally, the Stupid Cancer Show is all new, broadcasting in stunning HD. We know you can't listen to each show live, so be sure to subscribe for free anytime on iHeartRadio Talk, Apple iTunes Podcast, or right here on Blog Talk Radio. Visit stupidcancershow.org anytime. Be connected, and thanks for listening. And that is your Stupid, Stupid Cancer, Cancer News. All right. Incredibly excited to welcome back Congressman Debbie Wasserman Schultz to the Stupid Cancer Show. Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz is the U.S. Representative for Florida's 23rd Congressional District and Chair of the Democratic National Committee. She's also a breast cancer survivor and fierce breast cancer activist and apparently a softball player, having introduced the EARLY Act, which stands for Education and Awareness Requires Learning Young. In March of 2009, her new book, For the Next Generation, A Wake-Up Call to Solving Our Nation's Problems, is now available in the hardcover, and she joins us tonight to talk about all of her spare time. Please welcome Congressman <laughs> Debbie Wilson to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. I don't know if you remember, you were back on the show in 2009, right oh, up the yeah, early absolutely. act. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. I'm really I glad was, uh, to be back with you. It's really so great that your show has has thrived and continues because the cause of educating and connecting young people who have 
either lived through or are going through cancer is, is so incredibly important and remains so today. You know, since that show, uh, we have a very special common bond now that we didn't have back then. I have boy-girl twins. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, wonderful. So we can talk uh, under separate cover about all the trials and tribulations. <laughs> yeah, that you exactly. Have. We could do yeah. a whole show just on that. <laughs> exactly. Um, I did IVF. They'll be four in April. They're healthy. They're happy. It's, it's been a joy. Oh, so that's wonderful. Yeah, my twins were IVF also. Yeah, kudos to you on surviving not just twins, but another daughter. That's very impressive. I have a, I have a, a ten-year-old. Yeah, I have fourteen-year-old twins who were IVF and a ten-year-old who was not. So, yes, so. very impressive, very impressive. And uh, much love kids. to you. From, yes, much love to you from Jenna Glazer and Jen Mercer from the, from the YSC. We are national partners yes. with them, and uh, I want to talk about your your passion for softball. But first, <laughs> I'd. Uh, and is it a stress reliever for that fact? Um, oh, before we talk about especially with the intensity of politics, and it's actually about the only thing we're able to do these days in a bipartisan way. I was going to ask, maybe if it was tackle softball, would it be more therapeutic? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, the congressional women's team is bipartisan we, and bicameral. We play together and uh you know, as you probably know, we started the the. I started the game right after I shared my own personal experience, having gone through cancer, and wanted to make sure that we could use the game as an opportunity to raise awareness uh, about breast cancer in young women and raise money for the Young Survival Coalition. And so we, uh, the the members of Congress, the women members of Congress, play together, uh, and we play the female press corps. So it's an annual game now. We've actually raised uh, more than we've raised about half a million dollars since the the founding of the game five years ago. No, and it's just an incredible thing. And kudos for doing that. They're an amazing organization. We do a lot of great work with them. They are. They are. I love them. So, and uh, so it, I want, it really, we have so many young women who work on Capitol Hill, who, thanks to the game and thanks to Young Survival Coalition, are are able to be more aware about what's normal for them so they know when something feels different, and that's what we always talk about. So I'd like to jump back before we jump forward. Uh, I'd love you to share uh, just a, a brief – most people don't remember that you had breast cancer because you've become such a prominent figure now, but it's really helped to shape your, your policies and your, your personal beliefs. And, you know, as someone who was so young with three children, you had a double mastectomy, you had a hysterectomy, you carried the BRCA gene, it's a narrative unto itself, just the story. Love if you could talk about, you know, how all of that has really shaped the way you're approaching your career now and trying to change, uh, you know, the direction of the country. Oh, sure. No, it's my pleasure to, to share it. You're right. You know, it's, it's funny. I, um, I, I, from time to time, I mean, really, my breast cancer experience is part of, uh, is part of who I am now, and, and it's, uh, it's something that uh, when... When people who introduce me at events choose, you know, people will pick through your bio and, and choose which things to, uh, to talk about. And, I mean, every single time someone introduces me, they include as part of my background and, and history because it's such an important part of who I am that I was a young breast cancer survivor. And what happened for me was, five years ago, six years ago now, actually I just had December 7th was my six-year anniversary of being a survivor, and uh, 
I was doing a self-exam in the shower. I had just turned 41, but I had just had my first mammogram, which was clean, and this was in 2007. And uh, I was doing a self-exam in the shower, which I did, you know, from time to time, and uh, you know, often enough to know what was normal for me so that I knew when I felt the lump that it had not been there before. And, you know, thankfully I had, a, I had health insurance coverage that allowed me to be able to go right to the doctor. And, uh, you know, I wasn't going to play around. I, I knew it was not there before. Whether or not it was going to be something serious or not, I thought, let me let a doctor check it out. And that's the problem, Matthew, is, you know, so many young people blow off when something feels different. And so they don't get themselves right to the doctor. Or a doctor blows them off when they come to a doctor with a problem because they say, oh, you know, you're young, it's not, it's not cancer. So for me, I, I thankfully didn't have that problem. I went to the doctor, they checked me all out, and, uh, you know, unfortunately it turned out to be breast cancer, uh, which I was diagnosed with just a few days later. And uh, so initially, because my cancer was such an early, at such an early stage, it was, I was stage 1A, um, the recommended course of treatment for me was a lumpectomy and radiation. But because I had had, you know, I was 41, as I said, and, you know, having been diagnosed with breast cancer that young and being an Ashkenazi Jewish woman, meaning a Jewish woman of European, Eastern European descent, I also, in talking to the nurse educator, which really was something that was so significant for me in terms of the direction that my treatment went, because she noticed how much cancer there had been in my family, not breast cancer, but just a lot of cancer on both sides of my family, she recommended that I take the BRCA test which she said, you know, look, it's, you probably do not carry the, the gene but mutation, but because there's a one, of, you know, one in five Ashkenazi Jews do carry the BRCA gene, there was, you know, there was a high, an elevated chance. So I took the test, and a month later, it turned out when I <laughs> walked into the room for the results, um, there were way too many people in the room for the results to be negative. <laughs> and um, so, you know, it turned out that I was BRCA2 positive. And so at that moment, the course of treatment recommendation changed from a lumpectomy and radiation to, even though it was my, it's certainly my choice, I could have gone in that direction, but it was really recommended because of the likelihood of recurrence being a BRCA carrier being so high and the chance of getting ovarian cancer by the time I was 50, because it's also elevated when you're, when you're a BRCA carrier, um, it was recommended that I have a double mastectomy um, and have my ovaries removed really as soon as possible. So through 2008, I went through a year of surgeries, seven surgeries in the course of a year. Um, that actually was the, the year, you know, the presidential election year. So I was in the midst of campaigning first for Hillary Clinton and then for Barack Obama. But I have to tell you, having the presidential campaign as a distraction was uh, was, was definitely a godsend for me. So. Thankfully, after I got through the, the, the year, I, um, I, I actually kept it very private and didn't share my experience with, uh, with almost anybody, just very close family and a few staff that needed to know, uh, because I had young kids, and my, my kids were four and nine when I was diagnosed, and cancer is such a scary thing for children, and you know, in my case, my kids, the only thing they knew about cancer is that everybody that they'd ever heard of that had cancer had died. And I knew I was going to be okay because it was early, but I wanted to make sure I could share that with my kids once I was all the way through it. And then the other thing is that you know this as a survivor yourself. 
cancer is so isolating, and you feel like you have no control over anything. And so I wanted to control when, you know, because so, so I knew people who were well-meaning would say to me, you would say to themselves, well, we can't ask Debbie to do that because, you know, she's got cancer. And I, I knew what I would be capable of, and I wanted to control what I could and couldn't do. So keeping it to myself gave me that measure of control, and it, it really was empowering for me. And then I shared my story, and, and when I did, I introduced the early act. Right, which has had a magnanimous ripple effect. I hope so. I mean, we, we um, it, it was, you know, the early act was, uh, it, it came out of my desire, knowing that I would share my experience publicly, because for me, you know, being a member of Congress, I felt a responsibility as a, a survivor, but as a young survivor, to, you know, use my profile to be able to help other women, and particularly other young women. And so I didn't want to just be me too. You know, I didn't, of course I was going to support and always had supported more funding for research, but I wanted to fill a niche. You know, I wanted to, to find the void and be able to use my profile and my experience to fill that void. And clearly a gaping void was the awareness of young people, not only on whether on their likelihood of getting cancer, but on what they could do once they had it and the resources that are available to them. And I know that's what the Stupid Cancer Show has been so dedicated to for, for so many years now. I, I can tell you, I, because I was so focused on just doing what I needed to do to get through and recover, I didn't seek out resources very aggressively because I was kind of very self-reliant. But I know so many people now who have told me that, you know, thank God they had Young Survival Coalition or Force or Sharsheret um, and any one of the, the, the really wonderful, amazing organizations that are specifically designed to help young people be aware of their risk and also just deal with the unique challenges that young people face when they're, when they're dealing with cancer because it is so unique. And then, when, and, and then after that, which is what I'm going to focus on next legislatively, is we have thankfully so many young survivors now, more so than we ever had before, and they're living many more years as survivors. So then they're dealing with the unique challenges of being a survivor in your 40s, in, in your really even 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, when for years, that's when those, you know, the, your 50s is when the initial diagnoses came. So it's a totally different set population that has different needs that we really need to serve. Hi, Debbie. I'm Maureen, another employee here at Stupid Cancer. Um, and you were just talking Hi. about the needs of, um, of the young adult, and that's something, you know, that we address, of course, organizationally all the time. And yeah. I was wondering, you mentioned that during your diagnosis and your surgeries, you were, you know, working on campaigns and things like that. Um, and a lot of young adults talk about how difficult it is to balance a career with a cancer diagnosis and cancer treatment. And you, of course, are at, uh, in a high-profile position in Congress when you're diagnosed. So what was balancing that like for you? Um, did you have any specific reaction to your constituents? Were you able to keep it private enough, I believe you mentioned, um, that you didn't have to talk about that at all? Or, but how, how did that balance work for you? It was... It was really hard to to yeah. keep it private. The, the, the thing that actually made it slightly easier for me is that I lived in South Florida. I live in South Florida, 
and I had my treatment in Washington where I work. So because I didn't, I wasn't treated in South Florida, and so therefore wasn't around a lot of, you know, I, I didn't sit in waiting rooms among my constituency and, and didn't have to really, in my case, because I'm high profile, didn't have press that, you know, was on top of me during my treatment I, I, because I was able to do it in between my working hours, I, I, it made it a little bit easier. And so I kind of, what I did was I had my surgeries during congressional recesses. So instead of going home, I stayed up in D.C. and had my surgeries there and recovered there. And uh, and then I would go to my doctor's appointments really early in the morning before work. Like I would get to the hospital um, particularly during my reconstructive surgery because that was the, the most complicated in terms of the follow-up. Um, so I would get to the doctor at like 7 or 7.30 in the morning and then be on my way, you know, close to 9 and, you know, maybe only be a few minutes late to my first meeting. And, uh, you know, and then start it all over again the next week. Well, it, it, it's quite exemplary, and I think you've set a, a high standard, but it's something that it, it's so aspirational to know that it's possible, especially at that level of, of career. Um, so before we get to the book, I had one more quick question for you about sure. uh, your thoughts on the landmark case about the gene patenting. Were you involved with that at all, or what's your reaction to that? I, I was tangen- tan- tangentially involved in it uh, because I introduced legislation, actually, that and, – and just to back up for a second, when I was – when I was diagnosed with the BRCA gene, <laughs> you know, I, of course, my parents raised me to believe that, you know, if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. And when, God forbid, you do go through a health crisis, that you certainly, if you have to have any major treatment, should get a second opinion. So, you know, my innocent question after getting diagnosed with the BRCA2 mutation was, well, okay, how foolproof is this test? And can I get a second opinion? And so they reassured me, oh, the, you know, the test is 100% accurate. And no, you can't get a second opinion because there's only one company that has the patent on the gene and the test, and the, it's not replicable by any other company independently. So I thought that was totally outrageous. I mean, this was my biological material. <laughs> and, you know, I had to make a decision, life-altering decisions, on whether or not I was going to either, remember I told you I had sort of two directions I could go. Uh, so I had to have life-altering surgery based on the results of one test. To me, that was outrageous. I mean, thankfully, in my personal case, I had, I had had all the kids I'd planned to have. Um, you know, I had nursed my children, and, you know, so it, and, and in having my ovaries removed, you know, okay, so I'd, I wasn't planning on having any more kids, but I'm, that, that was just my unique situation. I, it, was, it just occurred to me how many women would have to make these kinds of decisions and and not be in the situation, you know, and and not ha- ha- having had their kids yet, and not you know, and and not be aware of what their options were. So I introduced legislation that when we were considering the patent reform legislation, and I was on the Judiciary Committee at the time, that uh, that would have required second opinion testing to be allowed, so that an independent company could create a second opinion test. And we actually commissioned a study from the Patent and Trade Office, which was two years in the making, and literally as the Patent and Trade Office was about to release their report, 
which would have recommended that second opinion testing be allowed, the Supreme Court handed down the decision that said that, that throughout uh, patenting of, de of genetic material, of naturally occurring de genetic material. And so it actually, the, the need for my legislation was, uh, was not necessary. So uh, now you, you wouldn't have to go through what I did uh, if you were diagnosed with, that gene to, with the gene today. And you have the actual really good news is that uh, there are companies coming out with independent testing that uh, that is less expensive. I mean, the week of the the week of the Supreme Court decision, the price of of another test dropped by about twelve hundred dollars. I mean, the test was three thousand dollars, Matthew. It, it, <laughs> I mean, really cost prohibit prohibitive for for many many women. Well, I'm I'm a huge fan of of genomics, and and part of my part-time job, which is not really a part-time job, is I'm fascinated by the science of the Human Genome Project and the wake of where we're at today, in terms of whole body sequencing. It's like it takes like two days, and it's ten grand versus ten years and two billion dollars. So, uh, re really amazing progress. And to your point, that's exactly the direction we're heading in. It's going to be a very exciting time in the coming years. So, um, so I, I do want to get to the book. Uh, and, and yes. by the way, you you. You were amazing on The Daily Show. So congratulations. Oh, for, thank for, you. Taking on John Stewart is pretty impressive. Um, the book is called For the Next Generation, A Wake-Up Call to Solving Our Nation's Problems. Clearly, we're in need of a wake-up call. So how do you um, define the next generation, and, and really what is the, what's, what's the takeaway, essentially? Well, next generation, for the most part, in the book is defined as, uh, as our children, the ones who cannot make it. Who, who really are at the mercy of the decisions that adults make because they can't control their own destiny. They have to they inherit the results of the good or bad decisions that we make or that we don't make. And so I, I wrote the book because it was actually right around fall of 2010 that I decided having watched the Tea Party sweep into power in far too many places and begin to hurdle us from manufactured crisis to manufactured crisis, um, particularly when it came to issues that I knew were important to the next generation that I was raising, because to me that's not an abstract concept. I, I've got the next generation in the back of my backseat of my car. <laughs> and, uh, you know, knowing that whether it was health care or education or energy and the environment, and, and really if you, if you thought about, and when I thought about it as a breast cancer survivor, all those things, uh, particularly the the the, envir the environmental impacts affect whether or not our children are going to be able to be healthy, whether they're going to be able to be prepared through education for the path that they choose in life, whether or not the environment is going to be able to sustain them, and the my way or the highway politics that we're living through right now, I think mostly as a result of the Tea Party's intransigence, it just isn't necessary. I mean, and, and I and I. I say that as someone who's been in office for 21 years, who 13 of those years I've been in the minority, so I've had to reach across the aisle. In fact, when uh, the legislation that I introduced on second opinion testing came up, I, I, we were in the minority, and I was able to get the very conservative chairman of the Judiciary Committee, who's from San Antonio, Lamar Smith, to work with me and help move the bill through, even though many of his members were opposed to it because you have to learn how to work together and reach across the aisle and find common ground. And I, I, I feel like, for me, if I can say that as the chair of the Democratic National Committee, that I, I know it can't always be my way, then 
my gosh, we, we all should be able to, to, to say that, no matter what party we're in. And so I felt like I needed to write the book to be able to lay out my view of the world, certainly, but really sound an alarm bell and, and give a roadmap to regular people so that they could take a look at any issue in the book and you know, get, my, get my sense and my take of, of what direction we should go, come to their own conclusion, but encourage them to get involved to make a difference themselves. Because you know, as Maureen uh, said in asking her question you know, of me, you know, how do you figure out how to balance it all and, and thread the needle? And people living their daily lives trying to take care of their kids and balance work and family, it's really hard. So zeroing in on the issue that matters the most to you and figuring out a way to make a difference on that issue, that's why I wrote the book, and that's what I hope people get out of it. I mean, I look back even just three to four years at the progress in young adult oncology best practices, simple things. I mean, a U.S. News report came out this weekend that most, like three-quarters of cancer centers no longer just, like, just don't discuss fertility options yet, but 25% do, and maybe that was 0% five years ago, and that's progress. Or you know how there are young adult guidelines now on how to treat young adults age appropriately, and there's now a new uh, like journal and society of AOA oncology. But this is all really driven by the next generation. We're a very millennial-heavy brand, and to see that it's possible for this generation to actually take action that helps themselves is, is very rewarding. I'll be turning 40 next year, aging out of my own organization. So I'm I'm, I'm right with you there that my children <laughs> are three. You know we have to really think about that. But, you know, with all of its controversy, you know, we look at the Affordable Care Act, and, and it's now law. Millions of millennials have access to health insurance. You know, but like the early act did for, you know, early detection, you know, how do you see the ACA achieving those similar goals and empowering the next generation to understand their rights and, you know, access to genetics? We are one of our survivor spotlights on the show this morning. Uh, his grandfather and his father had colorectal cancer, and he was diagnosed with colorectal cancer at 30, and he, he, there was no genetic testing for that. So uh, yeah. where, where do you think we're at and where we're headed with this? Well, the ACA is all about the next generation, whether it's making sure that young adults can stay on their parents' insurance until they're 26 or empowering young adults to be able to find and afford health insurance. And, you know, so many prior to the Affordable Care Act were simply unable to do that because it was unaffordable, because they would have a job that didn't provide that health insurance coverage. Uh, making sure that whether it's allowing them to plan their families because birth control is available without a copay or a deductible or just stay healthy because they can go get a checkup um, and make sure that they can catch illness early, like, like I was able to and thankfully you were able to as well. But that's what the Early Act was all about when I was able to amend it to the Affordable Care Act because we want to make sure that young, young people, that the next generation, are able to maintain their health so that they can set that aside. Like I said, my parents always encouraged me to, to, to believe in is that, you know, if you don't have your health, you don't have anything, you've got to make sure that, because, and, and we know, both you and I, that having been through a, a life-threatening health crisis, uh, you know, I was a picture of health on one day, and then the next day I was a breast cancer patient. And, you know, you, you realize that you're staring your own mortality in the face, and, when you're looking down the throat of that of that challenge, you are only focused on getting yourself well. And the Affordable Care Act allows young people to be able to essentially take whether or not they're going to be able to maintain their health off the table. 
as a concern, as as that that angst that that they either don't have because they're too young and they're not worrying about it, or if they are worrying about it or concerned about it at all, they now can have access to it and it's affordable. And you know, one of the most frustrating things. Matthew was, in, and I think I, I remember talking to you about this when I was on the show in 2009. Is you're absolutely right. Making sure that people understand that the health of young people is important, and spending money on it is important, and shining a light on it is important. I had to I had to fight tooth and nail to pass the, the early act, and I was stunned because there were actually cancer advocates, so-called cancer advocates, who thought it wasn't important to raise awareness about breast cancer in young women because it was such a small percentage, quote-unquote, of the, of the breast cancers. And so, you know, it wasn't worth taking resources away from the majority of breast cancer research, which was for older women. I mean, that, that, that just floored me at the time. But I think that added more gumption to the Margaret Mead metaphor of the young adult cancer movement, that only a small group of people <laughs> can change the world. Um, yeah. But again, I, I thank you for opining on that. It's really exciting. I wanted to close with a really quick question. I, I, I love the fact that you're involved in the Girl Scouts. And I, I would, <laughs> what, what have been some of the more teachable moments for you uh, seeing your, 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 your daughter um, in, the, uh, in the Girl Scouts and, and your role in leading a troop? Well, I was their troop leader for six years, and now I'm actually the uh, the troop leader of Troop Capitol Hill, which is uh, you know the honorary Girl Scout troop for uh, for members of Congress. And you know the the best the best thing about my girls' experience in in Girl Scouts and my own experience is instilling them instilling in them how important community service is and giving back, and that because they are for, they are fortunate that they need to take time out of their lives to help make sure that other uh, other kids in particular lives are better. And I remember we we annually go to a soup kitchen in our community every year, and my, I brought my troop, uh, I bring my troop every year, and uh, there were two little girls that came in with their mom to for a meal that one day that we were there, and they were the same age as the girls in my troop. And it was the first time that any of those girls had really right in their face the reality that every little girl in America doesn't live the life that they do. And I think it was very sobering for them. I could see the reaction on their faces, and it, it gave them a new perspective so that going forward they could understand that the work that we all do on a volunteer basis should be focused on making sure that, uh, that everybody has the opportunity to, uh, to, to have a, a, you know, a, a good life. Uh, it's certainly very incredible. Um, again, I, we were going to talk about your spare time, but we're out of time. And uh, <laughs> well, we have no spare time, so it's because we're out of time. And, uh, <laughs> Story I'm of my really, life. Okay. <laughs> I'm really flattered that you, you took time to come back on the show, and I look forward to meeting you uh, next year. I'm going to work with Kate and uh, Jen the next time I'm down to DC to see you around. We, but, we both uh, look the book forward is, to it. Yes, the book is for the next generation: a wake-up call to solving our nation's problems. The great and powerful uh, Congressman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Thank you. Happy holidays, everybody. Happy holidays and happy new year. That's good. Learned a lot. She's good. She's good. Again, like just, just the cancer aspect of what she had gone through at that level of position in her career. Uh, again, politics aside, like can you imagine getting cancer as a congressperson? You know, like it's, it's insurmountable. 
So not like you said, Dave, it's not a contest, but still, <laughs> that's pretty impressive. I got to be honest with you. Sometimes when you hear about you know people in that position having cancer. You know, unfortunately, on the colon cancer side, we don't tend to have the celebrity survivors. So right. to an extent, when you hear the C word, uh, you almost root for your side just to, you know, if you're going to have it, you know, just to see if, if we have someone of notoriety. I mean, we could use it, but, you know, no one wishes that on anybody. The thing is that that speaks to this notion of, of the celebrity of certain types of cancers and how breast cancer has kind of a leg up on other cancers. She didn't ask for breast cancer. She could have gotten any cancer. It just right. happened to be breast cancer. And, it, you know, is it, it is a very prevalent cancer. So statistically, someone would probably get breast cancer instead of molarectal well, cancer in general. But I would look at the young adult cancer movement, the under 50 movement, um, to talk about how we're, we're living in such a disease agnostic advocacy framework at this point, where even our manifesto says that there are no good cancers and it's not a, it's not a competition about body parts. Right. And the, the only celebrity is just a young adult who had cancer. It doesn't matter what kind of cancer. I don't care that you, I mean, I care that you had colorectal, but I look up to you as a young adult survivor advocate, not because you had colorectal, but because you had cancer in general. You know, I could lobby and advocate for brain cancer all I want, but I'm here for everyone with any cancer. But I think that's a very unique philosophy that's very generational. What do you think about that? I, I agree, but I mean that's that's one of the reasons why we we've made alive and kicking very uh, inclusive, because that it's that very same notion. Uh, in addition, I may have every body part by the time I'm done as well. But uh, you know, I, I do think it is generational now to not be so body part specific. Um, but you you still have the celebrity survivor that still makes uh, a significant difference. I mean, you, you look at look what happened with prostate cancer with uh, with Michael Milken. And now it's, it is where it is because of, of that sort of effect. Um, we haven't had that effect. Right. But I think just this notion of that you, you didn't want to make it just for CRC, that it is inviting for everybody. And even I look at, you know, the, the, just the, the conversations going around through the Young Adult Cancer Movement where we're seeing the CRC people talking, the breast cancer people talking, the thyroid cancer people, all these executives at these nonprofits are having conversations with each other irrespective of the cancer they reflect. And they're also tying it into environmental issues because right. nothing is in a bubble. Right. Uh, everything is tied to something else. So if you're affected by something environmental, which could be affected by uh, genetic, which could be affected by financial. I mean, right. these all are They're lifestyle pieces. issues. Yeah. Correct. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's the whole picture that I do think is a generational issue, and I think it has a lot to do with uh, the available information to us. Well, again, going back to that, we are a small pocket, to Debbie's point. Like, the, the early act faced a lot of opposition because it only affected 20,000 women a year, like only in quotes, right? In right. Quotes. But to, to the point of the young adult cancer movement being very homogenous, Robin, your experience as a caregiver to your husband and a mother to your children whose father was sick is equally applicable to someone who had breast cancer or brain cancer. It's just the lifestyle of what did you do? How did you, how did you react? How did you respond? That, that community that needs to be built is what's really driving and the motivating factor of, of our generation, at least in oncology. And I think that w that's our strength as opposed to, you know, this, this colors and ribbons and, you know, the <laughs> pink, uh, you know, uh, porta potties and whatnot. You well, know. I mean, but those are easy things to differentiate and rally around. Yes. So to an extent they do have their, their points. Yes. 
I mean, we, no one, no one ever suggested we don't have our work cut out for us. But I think, and if you just again, if you look at the last five years, I even looked at the last three years when I mentioned that there's now a young adult oncology society. There are now standards of care from ASCO and the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. Seattle Children's opened their first young adult only hospital, wow. which is a big deal. And now there are AOA programs at like 25 or 30 cancer centers now. Well, how about the, the, the journal that, that wrote about us? I mean, we were the, we were the pioneers. There was right. you, me, and uh, Tamika. Yes. Yep. Well, that, that's the society. Our board chairman, Dr. Sender, he, that's his society and the journal accompanying it. That's the whole point of it. It's, yep. is, it's, it's disease agnostic and irrespective, but it's all about driving change, not about you know, fancy colors and whatnot. It's, it's, it's good stuff. Yep. Well, anyway, so any final thoughts while you're here? It's good to be here. Yeah, it's always yeah. good to be here. Hey, good to have you. I love starting that way, and I love finishing that way. That's so. the best. Thank you. It's just the best. So, all right, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, any uh, follow-up before we close for the year, Kenny, Maureen? Well, happy holidays, everyone. Yes. Have a wonderful Christmas for those who celebrate. Have a wonderful couple of days off for those who do not and hopefully still have some days off. Happy New Year. Yes. All of that. And Kenny will enjoy. And be responsible. <laughs> Make good choices. <laughs> Look at the mirror. <laughs> Do not wake up in 2014 with any regrets. Yes. Pace yourself on the eggnog. Yes, pace yourself on eggnog. And Kenny, enjoy being 27 for this re- remainder of the year. Yes. All right. And now it is time for our closing sequence, the last of 2013. Prepare to activate. I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, Matthew. And the world. That's our show. Closing out season 13 with our 290th broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did. Talking a sick... And stupid cancer. I'd like to thank our season finale guests, David and Robin Dubin, and the Honorable Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. And that's a wrap for season 13 of the Stupid Cancer Show. We are on hiatus for the next few weeks. Join us for the season 14 broadcast premiere on Monday, January 13th, live at 8 p.m. right here at stupidcancershow.org. And remember, don't forget, you can subscribe to our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio Talk, iTunes, Podcasts, and Blog Talk Radio. Check us out anytime at stupidcancer.org and stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Andy Goodman, Kenny Kane, Maureen Sweet, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show. Thanks for listening. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. And we'll see you in 2014. Goodbye. Multiple tours. So.